Now would you turn with me to the beginning of your study outline, and as you're doing that, uh, let me welcome those of you that are watching online as we continue our series, a study of the Ten Commandments. Today we come to the Eighth Commandment, Acquire by the Rules. Let me do a little poll as we kick into this. How many of you have had either money or possessions stolen from you? Let me see your hands. Almost everybody. How many of you have either had your car broken into or your house broken into? My goodness, almost everybody. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky one. How many of you have lost money because somebody either deceived you or you bought something because somebody exaggerated the benefits of that product? (laughs) Yeah, that's like every commercial that you watch. Is that right? And uh, that's why we need the Eighth Commandment. Bill Hybels, we used his book, Power of a Whisper, uh, a few months back. He's got another book called Laws That Liberate on the Ten Commandments. He writes, it was Christmas Eve. My sister, Jenny was driving home from a late-night service at her church. The trees lining the country road glistened momentarily as they caught the beam of her headlights. The wet snowflakes gathered in icy mounds on her windshield wipers and left a thin layer of slippery moisture on the narrow road. As Jenny slowly rounded a sloping curve, she noticed a car stuck in a snowdrift at the bottom of the hill. Dismissing the recollected warnings that floated through her mind about stopping to help strangers, she pulled her car off the road and offered assistance. I can't believe you stopped, said the man in the car. I was afraid I'd be stuck here all night. Maybe if you drive the car while I push it, we can get it out. The two of them worked at it for nearly 45 minutes, and sure enough, they managed to get the car out of the drift. Jenny drove it to the top of the hill, then ran back down to get her own car. Thank you very much, the anonymous stranger said. You've been a tremendous help to me. He then reached into her car, grabbed her purse filled with money and credit cards, and said, thanks again. This will do nicely. He ran up the hill, got into his car, and drove away. Jenny watched in disbelief. You know, there's something, I mean, all the Ten Commandments can irritate you, but isn't there something about stealing that just really grinds you? It really ticks you off. And, and so we get angry with that. Now, you know, this is the whole problem that atheists have with regard to creating an ethic based on survival of the fittest. Because according to survival of the fittest, that guy wins. He survives. He's the fittest. He was faster. He was smarter. He stole from her. But there's something written on our hearts and written in God's Word that says that's just not right. Okay, survival of the fittest isn't right. That was wrong, uh, what he did. And that's why we need the Eighth Commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. Out loud, uh, together, you shall not steal. One more time, out loud, together, you shall not steal. First of all, the proper way to acquire. The Bible gives us three of many ways. First of all is work. Ephesians 4, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer and must work doing something useful with their own hands. My mother, this just kind of shows her sense of humor. My mother had a great, great sense of humor. And in the King James Version, it used to say, let him who stole steal no more, let him work with his hands. But my mom used to joke about changing the commas, let him who stole steal. No more let him work with his hands. That's what passed for humor in our family, which uh, explains a great deal, I might add. Uh, So anyway, work. But it's interesting. The work, you do it not just to provide your own needs and needs of your family, and not just to accumulate after that, but that they may have something to share with those in need. We work to provide for our needs, our family's needs, but also so we have extra to share with people in need. John Wesley who founded the Methodist Church, 
uh, he said a statement that's been credited with what we call the Protestant work ethic. It's what made our nation great. It's the foundation upon which our prosperity as a nation was built, the Protestant work ethic. And it went like this, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. That's the Protestant work ethic. That's God's plan for prosperity. Earn all that you can, save all that you can, give all that you can. Another thing the Bible talks about is investment. We've got the story of the talents in Matthew 25 by Jesus. It has a spiritual basis behind it, obviously, but inferred within this as an, as an endorsement of investment. The man that's commended in verse 16 says he took his money and he put his money to work through investments. But in verse 18, the guy is not commended who hid his master's money. Now, compare this biblical emphasis on investment uh, to today's national obsession with gambling. Uh, we are obsessed as a nation in this direction. Now, let me give you just a little bit of a disclaimer before I dig into this. And this is an issue of, of Christian liberty. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not gamble. No, no chapter and verse. So this is a matter of Christian liberty. That is, each of us can be led in different ways. And, and we're not to judge each other on that kind of a thing. However, I would say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said there are certain things in the Christian life that are permissible, okay? They're not against God's word. It's, there's no chapter and verse. They're, not, they're, they're permissible, but they're not beneficial. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Certain things are permissible, but they're not beneficial. And let me just share with you how for me and my convictions, okay, in our family, uh, we believe that gambling is one of those. It may be permissible, but it's not beneficial to advancing the cause of Christ. It's not beneficial in pursuing God wholeheartedly. Uh, let me give you some of my reasons for that. Consultant and author uh, John Scarney estimates the amount wagered on legal gambling in America could be as high as one-third of our gross national product. Think of that. We are obsessed, not, we are obsessed no longer with investment, but with gambling as a way to prosperity. The National Council on Compulsive Gambling estimates that there may be as many people addicted to gambling in our nation as alcohol. The average compulsive gambler disrupts the lives of between 10 and 15 different people, bets twice what they earn every year, and costs society more than $40,000 a year. It's often connected with organized crime and the corruption of public officials. Uh, the worst thing about gambling is that it exploits the poor. All income brackets gamble. But studies show that a higher percentage of poor people's income is lost in this way. Now, this is why it spoils it for us. In the sense that if we lose, we've lost money that we could have invested, lost money that we could have saved, lost money that we could have shared with other people or to promote the, the cause of Christ. But even if we win, we win on the backs of poor people, the poorest people who can least afford to lose that. Even when we win at gambling, that was at the expense of somebody who can't afford to gamble, those that can least afford to gamble within our society. Now, it's amazing how casinos today use psychological studies to increase their profits. Neurologists study just the right smell. Uh, they pump in fresher air, wider aisles, even back supports on the slot machines, uh, stools, so that you'll stay there longer. They try to keep the light off people's foreheads because it drains their energy. That's why I get so tired after Sunday mornings. I mean, my forehead is practically a solar panel, I'm telling you, you know. Um, they have built-in bill changers. They've discovered that deep, dark colors like black, red, purple, and blue cause people to gamble more. Computers track 
uh, the information on your gambling trends. It's all orchestrated to rip off people who can least afford it. And that's why our first president, George Washington, said this. Gambling is the child of avarice, the brother of iniquity, and the father of mischief. Now, you say, Glenn, it's just look like fun and adventure in my life. Well, let me ask you a question. Would it be fun if I could guarantee you that you were going to win the lottery? Would it be more fun? I mean, right now, the chances of winning the lottery are 13 million to one. It's been said that uh, the lottery is a tax on people that are bad at math. Okay. Uh, how about if I could give you one-to-one odds? How about if instead of it being 13 million to one, I could give you one? I can guarantee you're going to win in your lifetime. Here's how you do that. You take $1, you invest it daily at 8% interest, compounded semi-annually, will reach the million dollar mark in 66 years. I can guarantee it one to one. You say, Glenn, who's going to get 8% interest? Okay, well, here's the other uh, part of that statistic. The average American uh, gambles $1,176 a year. That's more than $3 a day. If you take that and invest, you can get a third of that 8% interest rate. Or if you got up to that interest rate, it would be well over $3.5 million that you would get after 66 years. 100% one-to-one odds that you will win in that particular way. That's why the Bible says you work. The Bible says you invest. Number three, you pray. Bible says if there's a gap between what you need and what you earn, the proper biblical thing to do is to pray, and God will step in and meet that need. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all of your needs. Now notice he doesn't say our greeds, he says our needs, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So the biblical plan to acquire is to work, save, give, and pray. Now, next page of your study outline, the proper attitude uh, to acquire. Number one, you put possessions into perspective. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet to forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He's not saying possessions and money is bad. It's just that they're relatively unimportant in the perspective of eternity. He says to put time into perspective. And he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things to themselves but is not rich toward God. It's the mistake of doing less important things first. We, we take care of short-term things, and then we say with regard to eternity, I'll eventually get to that. If I haven't committed my life yet to Christ, I'll eventually get to that. If I haven't shared Christ with a friend, I'll eventually get to that. If I haven't reoriented my priorities with regard to my resources and my time and my energy, eventually I'll get to that. And then number three, put treasure into perspective. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You invest $1,000 in Apple stock. 
That's all you look at. You open up the newspaper every day. What do you look for? Apple stock. You don't care about IBM. You don't care about General Motors. Don't care about AT&T. You're interested in what we're invested in. If we're invested in eternity, we will look forward to eternity. If our investments are in this life, we will cling to this life and dread the passage of time that leads us every day inexorably towards eternity. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, does another, uh, just, I love this illustration. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. And so he says to put treasure into perspective. Now, let's finish up with the improper way to acquire. And just like the other commands, there are a variety of ways to break them. I mean, this is one of those you look at and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm off on that one. I haven't broken into anybody's house or broken into their car in the last week or two. You know, I'm, I'm pretty clear on this one. Well, the first one is theft. You shall not steal. But that includes employee theft. Do you know that retailers tell us that more, they lose more money from employee theft than they do from outside shoplifter theft? More employees steal from them, their own people, than those outside. Now, there's this myth in America that if a corporation is big enough, they'll never miss it, and it's not hurting anybody. That's the American myth. It hurts everybody, because all they do is, is incorporate that employee theft or shoplifting or whatever theft it is back into their prices, and they jack them up by 2 or 3%. And so again, this falls on the backs of the poor, who are the least able to handle that 2 or 3% increase that we've all spread out to them through all kinds of theft from these corporations that are supposedly so big, it doesn't hurt anybody, and indeed, it hurts everybody. Uh, there's long-term borrowing, when we borrow something from a neighbor or friend, and we just keep it for an excessive amount of time. There's not working a full day for our company. Again, we say they'll never miss it, but it's termed under the biblical terms of being theft. Second thing the Bible talks about is deception. Uh, Proverbs 20, the Lord detests differing weights. That is where they'd have a, one set of weights that were legitimate and another that were not legitimate so they could charge you more for their product. And dishonest scales, you know, like you put the fruit there on the scale and you put your finger down on it just a little bit so the person pays for more fruit than they actually purchase. And dishonest scales do not please him. It also involves if we're in sales, selling something to a person they don't really need or shading the truth about a product in order to promote selling that product to somebody. And then the third one the Bible talks about is withholding. The Bible terms means to defraud somebody. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. We defraud people when we don't pay them for an item what we should pay them, or we withhold payment, or we don't pay them as an employer for an employee, what we ought to pay them. James 5, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. When we don't pay our taxes, we defraud the government. Now, if there's ever anything that we think is big enough, nobody will notice. But when everybody begins to do it, we notice it, don't we? And it multiplies through debt as well. 
And that's what the Bible refers to as defrauding a person. Now, the whole point of the Ten Commandments, I mean, when you begin to expand them like that, my response is, well, I, I don't have a chance. I can never keep all those all the time. That's exactly the right response. The whole point of the Ten Commandments is to drive us to the cross of Jesus for the grace of God and his mercy and forgiveness. I mean, you just think about the last three that we just covered. Maybe even today. I mean, you guys are a very honest group. And, and probably even the stealing one. Even when I brought it like, broaden it like that, it probably doesn't, it may not hit some people here. But how about last week when Jesus broadened thou shalt not commit adultery to include anybody who's ever looked lustfully at another person? Now we got 99.9%, 99.9% of the time. But how about two weeks ago where Jesus expands thou shalt not kill to ever being angry with another person? Now we have 100% of us 100% of the time. And oh, we haven't even gotten to lying, shading the truth, or coveting what somebody else has. We don't have a chance. We will not make it through this gauntlet. And that is the whole point of the Ten Commandments. I've, you've heard me use this illustration before. It's like all of humanity is on the West Coast, uh, the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington. And we think the perfection, perfect standards of God is the other side of a swimming pool. That's what we think. I mean, most of us don't feel the need of Christ because we're pretty decent people. Or we compare ourselves to not-so-decent people to make us feel decenter if that's a word, okay? So I say, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that guy down the street. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than Osama bin Laden or Adolf Hitler. You know, I'm not a perfect guy, but compared to them, I'm not so bad. And if I just swim across the swimming pool, no, 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 no. The glory of God is in Hawaii. And we've got to swim the Pacific 3,000 miles to Hawaii. That's the perfect standards of God. And we just can't do it on our own. The whole Ten Commandments is to make us realize God's perfection is in Hawaii, not on the other side of the swimming pool. We say, well, if I just had the right stroke, and so religions come along, and, and the religion of Judaism is the front crawl, and then the Islam is the backstroke, and, and uh, Buddhism is the breaststroke, and Hinduism is the side stroke, and, and even the religion of Christianity is the butterfly, and everybody's selling a different strokes, and we'd like, you know what? doesn't matter what stroke you do, you ain't making it to Hawaii. Um, best swimmer in the world is Mother Teresa. She gets out 10 miles, she drowns. Worst swimmer is Adolf Hitler. He gets out 10 inches and he drowns. And all of us are somewhere between Adolf and Mother Teresa. We're all somewhere in between there. But from a satellite looking down from space, it's still a long ways to Hawaii. And there's no difference from space between Mother Teresa's 10-mile swim and Adolf Hitler's 10-inch swim. No difference. Uh, we all have sinned, the Bible says, and we have fallen short of the perfect standards of God. If you look on the back of your, of your uh, program there, you'll see that gap there. And it says that all of us fall short in that particular way. And the only thing, you know what we need to get to Hawaii? We don't need better training. We don't need to work harder. We don't need a different approach, a different stroke. You know what we need? We need a boat. Or we need an airplane flight. Or we need a bridge from Hawaii back to us. And that bridge, that boat, that, air, that jetliner is Jesus. That's, that's, it dri that's why we share the Lord's Supper now. It drives us to the cross. The point of the Ten Commandments. And if you've ever prayed that little suggested prayer there or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray it today to receive Christ and depend on Christ 
and Christ alone. As we were just singing in our praise course, the cross is enough. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. You pray that prayer, open your heart to Christ. You are welcome to show that outwardly by sharing the Lord's Supper with us.